Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Welcome to the start of a new academic year. Today marks the first episode of season three, and what better way to kick it off than to take some time to delve into the work and impact of our founder and director, Professor Robert P. George. If you follow the Madison program, you know about his amazing institution building work, creating programs like ours. But today we're here to discuss his academic impact, which is no less great in the field of natural law. For those who aren't familiar, natural law is the idea that reason enables us to identify norms and principles by reference to which we can distinguish moral from immoral conduct and just from unjust laws. In addition to the teaching of scripture, it was to natural law that the Reverend Martin Luther King appealed in condemning racial segregation and other Jim Crow era laws. Today, we're chatting with Andrew T. Walker. Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We're here to chat about his book, Social Conservatism for the Common Good, a Protestant engagement with Robert P. George. The book consists of a series of essays from Protestant scholars about Robert George and his work, addressing the important question, how should Protestants engage with natural law theory? One quick note before we dig in, once again, perhaps we got a little bit too in the weeds in this conversation, and this time it was discussing the work of John Rawls. So, quick overview for those of you who are unfamiliar, Rawls was a prominent 20th century political philosopher who, among other things, advocated for a restricted role for religiously informed moral judgment and advocacy in the public square. He argued that religious and other comprehensive views, which means views about human nature, the human good, human dignity, and human destiny, were not an appropriate basis for lawmaking, at least when it comes to constitutional essentials and matters of basic justice in a pluralistic, democratic society where people profoundly differ in fundamental beliefs. In the show notes, I've included a few resources if you have more questions about Rawls, natural law, or the subfield, new natural law, which is what Professor George specializes in. So that was a lot of background, but with no further ado, I'm really excited to welcome you to season three of Madison's Notes. Andrew, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you, and thank you so much for writing this phenomenal book. Yeah, Annika, thanks for the invitation. Um, I really admire everything that the Madison program stands for. So it's really an honor to be with you all. So to kick us off here, I think right now in America, Catholics and Protestants have a lot of shared political interests, but it also feels, at least to me, like tensions are kind of high. I mean, maybe more in D.C. than in some other circles, but generally I feel that that's often the case. Um, So this book that you've written seems to kind of be bridging a divide here, taking a Catholic thinker who maybe some Protestants would say it's too Catholic, we don't we don't want to touch these kinds of topics, and bringing it to a Protestant audience. Can you talk a little bit about the utility of that project and why there's a need for that kind of discussion? Sure. Um, that's a really good question. So, you know, I am unreservedly and unashamedly Baptist um, and Protestant, I would say, in my, in my theological convictions. Um, and one of the things that I will often speak to my students about is when we go back to 
the Reformation, which is kind of the great divide in Christendom, so to speak. Um, the Reformation really wasn't fought preeminently over issues of ethics or moral theology. Um, the disputes there were, pertained more to questions of ecclesiology, soteriology. Um, and then I think maybe at the end of the day, we might kind of um, categorize those under uh, the issue of authority. There's a, a, a difference in authority structures between Protestantism and, and Catholicism. And so um, as, as an ethics thinker, um, I, I have to acknowledge my indebtedness to the Catholic traditions, kind of well-worn, established thinking on matters of, of social ethics, bioethics, um, all range of ethics. And so this is, this is one of those areas where I feel like there is um, a, a broad area of cooperation and agreement, mm-hmm. especially when you think about issues of um, co-belligerence that we all share very similar um, goals as pertains to the common good and, and how we think the flourishing society ought to look like. And so, uh, you know, when I first got exposed to Robbie George's work, which I think was roughly in 2007, mm-hmm. you know, I, I read this book as this kind of intellectually precocious, it was the clash of orthodoxies for, for the listeners. I, I read this book as kind of a precocious, um, you know, young Protestant and as I was reading it, I was just kind of gobsmacked by, oh, wow, this is a guy that's making arguments that I entirely agree with. They agree mm-hmm. with what scripture says is true pertaining to marriage, life, um, human dignity type issues. Um, but, but this guy isn't only citing scripture. And, and, you know, and this isn't meant to be any type of, of barb thrown at, at Robbie George, um, you know, his, his primary method of argumentation is not scripture. Hmm. And that's where most of, that's where Protestants spend their time. And so what I notice is, um, you know, I would, I would say that, that Catholics need more scripture and I would say that Protestants sometimes need more philosophy. Hmm. And I think the conglomeration of those two, uh, approaches can really create, um, a, a robust ethic. And I think that one of the reasons this book could be written was because um, obviously uh, it's not a book on theological first principles or prolegomena. Uh, that's where some of the, the, the uh, alliances would begin to break down. And um, you know, there are, well, I don't want to shy away from, from the differences. Uh, and there are spots in the book where I do note that there would be some divergence um, in terms of how Protestants and Catholics might conceive of these particular issues. Um, but the goal of the book really uh, is to highlight to Protestants what I think is the very best of an intellectual social conservative philosopher um, and how all of these arguments um, align with scripture. And I think mm-hmm. bolster and support what a Protestant would want to do um, as we think about our obligations to to the public square, and so I, in, in my career so far, um, I I have tried to build intentional bridges um, with with Catholic thinkers simply because in the areas of ethics, there's just natural, there's just there's some, some there's simpatico, so to speak, as you think about public square issues. Now, if I were a systematic theology professor, um, I think that we'd have 
um, some some bigger uh, divides to try to to build bridges within. But it's it's really the ethics entry point, which is where this book came to fruition. Uh, and I hope that I hope that it is received well by um, by Protestants and Catholics alike. Well, it's been received well at the Madison program, so you have that going for you anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to in your answer uh, that, that Protestants need more philosophy. And then your chapter in your book talks about new natural law, which is Professor George's specialty. Um, why, why do Protestants need more philosophy, I guess? And then when we look at new natural law, I mean, as you observe in the book, it really doesn't spend much time in scripture. Uh, Is that good or bad? (laughs) Yeah, no, wonderful question. I was actually talking about these issues with my students today in class. (laughs) So I I would say one of the reasons I I think Protestants need a little bit more philosophy um, is uh, I I can relate this back to an anecdote that happened to me a few years ago. Uh, where I gave some talks at a very large, prominent Christian high school, Protestant Christian high school, and it was on the subject of the transgender issue. And on the second night of my talks, a teacher came up to me from the school, looked to be middle-aged, been teaching there for a long time. And she said to me, hey, thanks so much for your talks. Uh, They've been really helpful to me. And she goes, "Uh, I I never knew that we actually had good reasons Hmm. to believe what we believe around um, God making us male and female. And it's one of those statements that, you know, in the rush of getting ready to speak, you can kind of throw away and, and you know, you have other things to be thinking about. But, but that literally has been one of the, like the, the defining moments of my career because it, it, it revealed to me that um, all the things that I love about being Protestant are our, our emphasis on the Bible and the Bible as our authority. It's all the right instincts, it's wonderful. Uh, I commend that. But that then raises the question is if we go to our Bibles, is the ethics that come out of our Bibles, do those correlate or correspond to sound reason and to creation order as we know it? And I think that's where philosophy really comes in and begins to help explain um, how how truths that are in revelation, in, in special revelation, um, because of my philosophical and theological system, those truths must always align with general revelation or what we would call the relationship between faith and reason. Um, because, and this gets back to a doctrine of God question, God isn't schizophrenic. He doesn't create a moral domain over, over there and then create a different moral domain over here. Um, properly understood faith and reason must relate. Uh, that means that they must relate both uh, in terms of general revelation, special revelation, but it also must relate to uh, the ethics of revelation versus what would be sound philosophy um, regarding such issues as bioethics mm. uh, and the, the definition of marriage. J- just today, in fact, um, I was articulating how the language in Genesis 2 about how husband and wife become one flesh. I said the one flesh language is, is yes, it's metaphorical, um, but, and, and that's, in, that's in special revelation. The question then we should ask is, well, what about the one flesh union makes this union unlike other types of relationships? 
And that's where the new natural law traditions understanding of marriage being a comprehensive union uh, oriented around the good of marriage and family life come come to fr- into fruition and where we need to have some facility uh, with those categories. Now, the second part of your question was about, um, you know, new natural law doesn't really invoke scripture. Uh, I, I, I think that's, that's generally correct. I've never understood the new natural lawyers to be setting themselves apart from scripture necessarily or contra scripture. And I think this is genuinely, and I, and I write about this in my chapter, this would be one of the areas where I would offer some critique of the new natural law tradition is, is as I survey the landscape, 99.9% of all new natural lawyers seem to be theists um, right. in, in some variety. So all, all my appeal would be to acknowledge that upfront, that the reason that there are moral goods and the reason that reason makes sense and that we can ascertain and grasp these moral goods is because God has promulgated a universe where these goods exist and that we can actually um, grasp them through reason. And again, I, I don't want to be more critical than than is fair. If you do read Robbie George and Jermaine Grise and John Finnis, it's not as though um, they are hiding their theological um, presuppositions. It's just in 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 the chain of moral reasoning, mm-hmm. it kind of comes later on in the conversation. Whereas I think most Protestants would say, well, no, it should come first in the conversation. And I, and I would agree that I, I want to kind of state my theological axioms up front. I mean, it seems to me there are kind of two types of this. There's what you're talking about, which is using philosophy to inform your faith. And then there's a way that a lot of people, I think, including Professor George, also talk about it, which is making this case in such a way that even if you were an unbeliever, you could find it compelling. Um, Can you talk a little bit about kind of the status quo in that distinction? Yeah, no, good good question. So, um, I mean, one of the things I'll say up front in this discussion is, you know, I I do, um, in, in my theological worldview, would say, that um, everyone has some knowledge of the moral law, that um, it has been wounded, but not extinguished. Um, both reason and the will can really do some, some damage in, in trying to get consistency and clarity as regards the moral law. But again, it, it, hasn't, it, hasn't, um, it hasn't been entirely suppressed uh, because the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, that every single human being is is without excuse, meaning that if they're if they're without excuse and they can be held liable for judgment, they have to have some liminal moral knowledge of a law that they're breaking and a a notion of a lawgiver. Uh, and so, I, I, I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way. Um, My question was roundabout too. So yeah, no. <laughs> So, so I don't know, and I I don't know if new natural law um, is is meant to be the most persuasive school of thought mm. um, in in modern day intellectual life. Uh, I, I wish it if if we were only minds in vats mm. and just brains with cognitive activity, I think it would be very 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 um, persuasive. But we're not that way. Um, I think that in the nature of how humans reason and how we cooperate today, um, 
I would say this is normative, but it's not good. Uh, we tend to reason with our emotions first, and then yeah. our reason wants to end up justifying our emotions. So that makes persuasion more difficult because when you have a field of thought like new natural law that is extremely cognitive, and I, you know, I, I will say I'm a convinced new natural lawyer, while at the same mm. time saying it's some of the most unpleasant, dry. <laughs> technical reading um, that that staggers the imagination of how such great thoughts can be really difficult to understand sometimes. Hmm. Um, but all that to say, this gets back to a question of why the natural law in general. And in, I have a new book coming out in May called Faithful Reason, and it's on kind of a Protestant new natural law. And one of the arguments that I'm making is while natural law can and should be persuasive, um, yeah. its utility is more than its persuasiveness as well. And I, this is where I'm getting to really a notion of ethical catechesis for Christians, that the natural law is there for us to use apologetically with non-Christians to talk about the reasonableness of our mm. ethics. Um, but really one of the biggest goals I have as a, as a professor and what I'm teaching my students is for us to enter the natural law discussion through the door of catechesis rather than persuasion, because I don't know how it is. Um, actually, I don't know if you're, if you're Protestant or Catholic. Oh, I'm, I'm Protestant. I should okay, have. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to, to know. Um, then, then I don't know what your experience has been, but in my realm of kind of reform Protestantism, when natural law is brought up, the first response is, yeah, but it persuades no one. Hmm. And to which my response is, okay, well, like, sure, I can buy that it may not persuade someone, but just because it doesn't persuade someone doesn't mean that the principles themselves aren't true, or the fact that the person that the person actually may internally agree with the principles, but to use the, the language of Apostle, the Apostle Paul, they'll suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So they'll engage in an act of self-deception right. um, to kind of volition, volitionally push down what they know to be true. So my whole response to this discussion is, okay, put aside persuasion um, and let's go back to the Florida teacher who didn't really understand why maleness and femaleness are rational and reasonable categories. Like what happened mm -hmm. in our development as Christians where um, a mature Christian woman doesn't have the knowledge to understand that our embodiment as male and female is is fixed. It's objective. It's, it's not, uh, it's, it's a static reality. And that's where you need, that's where you need the categories of the natural law to come in in a complementary way and help fill out the theological category with rational explanation of, you know, um, where that we're hylomorphic beings, body and soul. You are, you are, you are more than your body, but you are never less than your body and, and you are you and you can't transcend um, you, you can't transcend yourself and make yourself something that you're not. Um, and so that gets into principles of, of, of self-constitution and um, uh, other, you know, there's other questions related to the natural law to that. So I guess this is a roundabout way of getting to a conclusion. Uh, I really wish the conversation around natural law would be about how this is an in-house conversation before it is an, mm. a, an external conversation. 
Interesting. I know, and it's funny that you say that that would be the first response from Protestants, because I think my first response would be, would have been, why would you put Aristotle before the Bible? I think when a lot of people talk about natural law, they just, they go heavy into the Aristotle and they have like the one quote from Hebrews about it being written on the heart. And that's as deep as the biblical discussion about it goes. Well, and a part of this, one of my, one of the more fun elements is, you know, Protestant rejection of the natural law is a pretty recent historical phenomenon. Yeah. And so when I go and point to, um, you know, Zwingli and Luther and Calvin and uh, Hemingson and Vermigli mm-hmm. and all of these other Protestant reformers, some of them lesser known, um, and they're all chock full of natural law teleology honestly, very similar in the vein of, of, of Aristotle in some sense. Interesting. The, the response is kind of like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so that's where, that's where a, a lot of what I'm trying to do is an act of retrieval. And in many ways, I think the natural law conversation um, should end up making you more Protestant because it's actually going to make you tap deeper into your Protestant roots. Um, and and I'll, I'll just say this real quick. And uh, you know, I, there's a book by Niels Hemmingsen, who is a, he was a Danish reformer, protege of Philip, Philip Melanchthon. And uh, he has this book called uh, On the Laws of Nature. And this was written, you know, I think late 16th century, and it's just recently gotten translated into English. And I read the volume and I was just gobsmacked after reading it because, um, it was new natural law theory before there was anyone by the name of John Finnis or Jermaine Grise. And then you read, you read the afterword of the book and the person who writes the afterword will say, well, anyone who has now finished this and knows the natural law conversation will understand that you have a reformed kind of Lutheran thinker actually arguing in the same way of the new natural law tradition. And so again, there's just the need for historical retrieval um, and, and understanding um, that, you know, when you hear the term natural law, Protestants just go to, well, that's a Catholic idea. That's Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. He's bad. Um, to which <laughs> I want to respond, well, have you actually read the treatise on law right. um, for yourself? Because the caricatures that come from, you know, second sor- secondhand sources or thirdhand sources can just kind of morph over time. And so it's like, no, let's go back to the sources and read for yourselves. And you actually might make yourself more Protestant hmm. as a result. That's super interesting. Um, So kind of shifting the conversation a little bit back to Professor George here, we were talking a little bit about the changing landscape um, in terms of the country on some of this stuff. And particularly one thing that I really appreciate that you talk about, I think in the introduction to your book, is this idea of comfortable Christianity, um, which, you know, is an era that's kind of ended. Um, And you you quote Professor George talking about this idea. Can you talk a little bit about as that landscape has shifted, which happened over the course of Professor George's lifetime, what role he's had to play um, in adjusting kind of the way we speak to to come into accord with that and and our strategy? Well, I mean, there's obviously the, the intellectual component to Robbie's work, but one of the statements that has kind of anchored my own ministry and my worldview is that um, movements only exist in the context of relationships for one. And then I think 
you know, movements only exist in the context of relationships and institutions. And so the, the idea that you're just going to take back America for moral righteousness by pure ideation alone in this like platonic level of, of, of ideals, um, that's a pipe dream. What that means is you're going to actually have to give, give feet to these ideas. And so you, what you have with Robbie George is um, an astonishing intellectual capacity Mm. um, wedded with a demeanor and a sense of intellectual charity and personal just warmth on his own front that makes institution building and relationship building preeminent to the task of cultural renewal. And so, you know, right now we're having this podcast interview with, with the Madison program at Princeton, which is one of the institutions Robbie George has helped build. Um, and I, you know, in one of the conversations I had with Robbie, he actually has made the statement to me that his institution building might be his bigger legacy than even his intellectual footprint. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a fascinating revelation. Um, and, and, is a testimony to the fact that you now have someone who's been in public life for, I guess, you know, upwards of 40 years. And, you know, I consider myself pretty well versed in kind of Robbie George's biography. And I was actually listening um, just today to an interview that Robbie did with Jonah Goldberg on the Rumi podcast. And I learned something new about a foundation that Robbie had set up that I had no previous (laughs) prior (laughs) knowledge of. And I was like, well, wait, I thought I knew pretty much everything there was about his his kind of coalition building enterprise. Hmm. Uh, and so this is just, you know, listen, so he, he's an old, I shouldn't say he's old. He's older than me. He's, <laughs> he's, he's entering that kind of senior statesman, senior scholar status. Uh, and so there's this question of how, what's that legacy going to look like? How is it going to be carried forward? And I don't think it's a, it's a surprise when you have individuals like Sharif Gurgis and, Ryan Anderson and myself, who are all friends um, and who are all, you know, linked in arms on all of the issues that we care about. Uh, And yet we are still uh, very clear on our theological differences. And I think what I honor about Professor George is uh, to partner with what he thinks matters. uh, It requires no compromising of the conscience. So he, he would not want me to be any less Protestant for me right. to do my work. Uh, now he might want me to be Catholic just because he's a Catholic, <laughs> but I can tell that, you know, he, in, in the book itself, and maybe you read this in the interview at the end, yeah. um, he, has tr- he has tremendous respect for Protestantism and says that there's a lot that c- modern Catholicism needs from Protestantism right now. And so, um, yeah, hopefully that, 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 answers your question. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. And I think, I mean, kind of the thread tying uh, the first and second half of what we've talked about so far together um, is current debates about freedom in the American order um, in the American Constitution, which is definitely a topic which both you and Professor George have been writing and thinking and speaking a lot about recently. Um, and as I said, it's kind of under fire from like a younger generation of conservative primarily Catholics who Mm. 
don't necessarily think so much of Professor George's projects, especially so much as they surround free speech and American ideals and some of these kind of more freedom oriented enterprises. Um, Talk a little bit about what Professor George has kind of contributed to that debate. Oh, yeah. No, so uh, this is this is this is um, as relevant on the Protestant side as it is yeah. the Catholic side, because, um, you know, we're at a moment right now where uh, a, a growing contingency of Protestant conservatives and, and to be clear, I would count myself as an arch Protestant and an arch conservative, um, but I'm not. I'm not a so-called Christian nationalist or I'm not a theonomist or, or what we would call in Catholic worlds, an an integralist. And I think the reason that Robbie George's approach is so valuable right now is as we, as we survey um, Christian political engagement, there's really two errors that um, Mm. we can, we can fall into. We can fall into I think um, a, a, a political quietism that says that we can just exist on the margins and have our holy huddles. And then there is the argument that says, well, no, um, it's ours. We've got to take it back. Um, we're going to get the political power and then we are going to punish everyone else who disagrees yeah. with us. And I think that there's a via media here in Robbie George's work. Um, particularly, and if anyone is, is is listening to this, you know, I would point people towards two things. Um, his essay and Ryan Anderson's essay, The Baby in the Bathwater from National Affairs, and then chapter seven of his book, Making Men Moral. And um, one of the reasons this, this chapter in, in, in his work is so valuable is it gives conservatives the ability to mount a full orbed socially conservative political ethic hmm. that that doesn't fall prey to Rawlsian liberalism yeah. and it doesn't fall prey to heavy handed religious authoritarianism yeah. um, because it argues that um, there is a way in which we can argue about moral goods um, that everyone in principle could, could agree to. And so, and, and, and to testify um, to, to, or to vindicate Professor George's thesis here, you know, just in the last 12 months or so, several states have begun enacting legislation to tamp down access to pornography. Mm, yeah. I think 30 and 40 years ago, conservatives would have been really hesitant yeah. to wade into that territory for fear that if you go after the pornographers, you're going after everybody's free speech. And George's work is helpful in distinguishing, well, no, prurient speech that serves no true moral good. um, There may be a compelling interest that the state has to step in and restrict that. And that type of speech is not the type of speech over here. And so I think it helps just draw very careful distinctions between, you know, controversial speech that we may need to hear versus prurient speech that really does serve no particular good whatsoever. And so, you know, this is one way in which I think ideas begin to trickle down and, you know, making Mm -hmm. it moral, I think comes out in the early nineties, if I recall, um, and in chapter seven and making men moral, there's an, there's a whole section on the potential to restrict pornography within the confines of liberal democracy. Yeah. 
and you want to say yes and amen. And I think this is where, you know, to, to put a feather in the Madison program's cap, this is where the American ideals can come home to roost. Um, that to the American ideals um, does not mean that you're a pure Lockean. Uh, it also doesn't mean that uh, to be American means you must only be a Christian as well. Right. Um, you know, I, I want as many Christians as I possibly can get in, in the population, but, you know, apart from every single human being in America being a Christian, we're going to have to figure out ways to, to morally regulate our society. And Robbie's project does a better job in articulating what I would say are biblical norms uh, in ways that are publicly accessible that again, it evades the Rawlsian temptation and then it evades the religious authoritarian uh, position as well. Mm, I'm happy that you brought up Rawls because yeah. you've the entire chapter in your book by Hunter Baker dedicated yeah. to it. And I think it's a really important topic. I mean, if you talk about ideologies that have trickled down, right. Rawls is really one that is people, don't, I, don't, I don't think necessarily understand how baked he is into the basic way that we talk about politics in America. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the back and forth uh, between George and Rawls. I mean, particularly, I mean, you quote Professor George in your book talking about Rawls and Martin Luther King disagreeing. Yeah. That's a really kind of shocking yeah. fact, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll assume that, you know, for argument's sake, most people are familiar with kind of Rawls's project. But, you know, the, the, the whole notion of, of sanitizing public debate of what we would call comprehensive doctrines that you have to argue in this, you know, kind of sphere of pure Archimedean neutrality, uh, yeah. which by the way is its own illusion because no one argues from a, from a pure vantage point of neutrality. So we should just kind of like challenge, we should challenge that presupposition um, at the outset. Uh, but I will say this while George's project is very helpful at um, showing the basic moral good of religion in society and why religion should be protected. I will acknowledge this. One of the reasons that at least his program is complementary to public reason is that it is at least providing a vocabulary where citizens can all hypothetically get on the same page uh, about, about moral goods. Um, now you brought up the Martin Luther King issue and, and Rawlsianism. I mentioned this in every single one of my classes, right? <laughs> um, and I feel like a lot of my classes, I could just basically take a letter from a Birmingham jail yeah. and explicate the whole class just on the moral principles of that, of that particular letter. Uh, but no, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. makes Rawlsian liberals very uncomfortable. Uh, if, if religion is sectarian uh, and it speaks a language that only a few can hear, then what do you do with Martin Luther King Jr., who uses explicitly Christian revelatory moral categories to affect positive change? Um, and, and I think this is where you also want to acknowledge there's a, uh, a, 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 an inconsistency in Rawlsianism here. Uh, you know, Rawlsians on the one hand want to decry religion, but then, but then, you know, they'll leave themselves an out when it comes to Martin Luther King Jr. And they'll say, oh, well, we like religion when it furthers uh, ideals that we agree with. 
Um, but then that that's just not fair, right? Um, th- that's why you do need a, a sphere for religious argumentation and why you should protect religious speech because it does provide that, that horizon or arc of moral argumentation that someone who, if they are just so dead set and settled on their kind of own obsequious, narrow-minded worldview, um, the only thing that might get through to them is revelation at that point. Um, and that's where, again, we're, we're entering into theological categories of, wow, what happens when people begin entertaining the possibility of transcendence? Uh, you know, I, and to close the loop here, there's, a, there's an essay from 2014 that Douglas Murray, the British intellectual, wrote. Uh, and it's on the problem, it's, it's on atheism and the problem of human dignity. And he, he very straightforwardly says that atheists really have three solutions when it comes to human dignity. He says they can um, stare over the cliff and acknowledge that atheism has no doctrine of human dignity that's consistent and principled. Or um, we can work to hammer out and furnish an atheistic doctrine of human dignity. Or three, he says, we should acknowledge how indebted we are to Christianity and we just need to go back to church. And he's an atheist, or he might be an agnostic now at this point. But I think that's that's one of the reasons that Robbie's project, I think, splits the baby, right? It, it argues for the good of religion um, in society as, as a mode of moral discourse, but it also emphasizes the possibility that those moral norms bear relationship to reality as every human being knows it. Um, and we can, we can engage in some sphere of moral argumentation with, with non-Christians. And yeah. that, that these ideals, democratic ideals like human dignity, um, they don't, they don't come from, from John Rawls. And if they don't come from John Rawls, where do we get that? And so you better create an ecosystem where the big questions and the big ideas that we need to have the ability to access, i.e. religion, we better have, a, we better have a, a civil order where religion can be tapped into because we're no, we, we know secularism can't provide those things on its own. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on this topic, you have a recent op-ed, um, and in that op-ed, you claim that central to conservatism has always been a belief in God. Um, and I think that dovetails really well with Robbie's project, but I think there are basically kind of two camps of opposition. One would be people who think that it somehow makes it less neutral if you have a belief in God as the foundation of your political beliefs. And the other would be Christians who say that Christianity itself should be apolitical and that by having that as the basis of conservatism, you're diluting that somehow. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those two critiques and also how Professor George has managed to straddle that line. Oh, wow. There's so much there. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) This is a whole podcast episode (laughs) we can just talk about. Um, I mean, so, so in my account of conservatism, I mean, conservatism as I understand it, means to conserve that which is true. Yeah. And I don't know how to arrive at truth that's objective, universal, intelligible, um, authoritative, apart yeah. from there being not only an objective moral law, but 
a transcendent moral lawgiver. And yeah. that's where God has to enter into the equation. Now, how I reconcile this as, as a theologian, and, I, and I, I, I'll go to John Calvin and, and give him the credit that he's due here. You know, he has this idea of what he calls the duplex cognito day. The idea that there's a twofold knowledge of God. There's knowledge of God, the creator, and then there's knowledge of God, the redeemer. And he argues, based on biblical data, that every single human person has some liminal knowledge of God, the creator, that law written on the heart that the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 2. And so I do think that far from God being um, a sectarian idea, I think that we just need to be more honest and straightforward about any time we invoke a moral obligation. Uh, you better have an explanatory source for that obligation. The op-ed that you're talking about was me critiquing this freedom conservative statement, which, please hear me, I like almost everything that's in that freedom conservative statement. I'm pro-freedom. I'm pro-conservative. <laughs> um, my, my problem with that statement is the glaring inconsistency because the whole statement evokes or it invokes oughts, right? Moral oughts. Well, all of a sudden, you know, to evoke oughtness means you're evoking obligation and, and what source exists that can actually place obligation on us. Well, if it's just human convention or consensus or majorities, um, there's no assurance that those moral oughts are, are truly good, that the moral oughts there could just be based on pure, pure, sheer will. Um, yeah. and, and then moreover, how do you have an authority that can will the good and order the good? That has to be God. So God has to be at the forefront of our deliberations on any moral claim. And then when you get to the question of, of, of how Christians can get this wrong, one of the things I notice, at least in evangelical sectors, is um, grace basically negating nature is, the, is what I would say, is that, um, you know, what really matters is that we are, uh, we, we are a holy huddle. We maintain our purity. We don't get involved with with the compromising forces of coercive political authority. Um, and I think that mistakes a proper understanding on the relationship between nature and grace or creation and redemption. It's to understand that in this age, um, governing authorities are here for our good. I mean, the first Peter says to praise those who do good literally is what the text says. Um, so if, if, Government is not just a nameless, faceless enterprise, but it's occupied with people who have consciences. Those consciences are going to be shaped and formed. And you better hope that they're shaped and formed in the right direction. And I think that's where Christianity has a lot to say to this conversation, that the role of the, of the Christian in society is to have their, their Christian-shaped conscience then inform their life in the public domain. Uh, and I think that this means... Um, active engagement to understand that the political power is is not a pollutant by design. Uh, there's a great quote um, from a, a former Baptist thinker. He said that um, as all ice is cold ice, all politics is power politics. Mm. And what he's getting at is is that politics and power is just the ability to steward 
momentum in the direction of what you should hope is good. Yeah. Um, Because power is itself kind of a value neutral category. You can use power for good and you can use power for evil. And, um, you know, to, to my Christian friends, uh, I think that we've been trained to think that politics is inherently corrupting. And I said this in my class today, politics cannot save you, but politics is a venue to do good and to love your neighbor. And, and the love of neighbor in the aggregate is merely the common good. So if you care about every single human person having a chance to thrive, uh, you better have a high attention to what's happening politically. Yeah, and I think that attitudinal difference is one of those really deep differences between Catholics and Protestants culturally. So it's interesting that you bring it up. Um, to close us off here, I know we're running up against time. Um, you know, you have the work that you've done prior to this book, which is sort of on more pragmatic issues like marriage and abortion and raising a family. And you have this upcoming work, which is this very heady topic of natural law. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how you bridge that divide. Why is one important for the other? What leads you to work on both of these topics, which so many people view in totally separate spheres? Yeah. So, I mean, this gets to the heart of my ministry. Um, I I want to do two things. Um, I I felt a call to ministry when I was in high school. And you kind of tease out what that ministry is going to look like as you get older. And the more I've understood it, it is to do two things. I, I want to participate in high-level academic intellectual conversations. And so I mentioned to you, I have this book coming out next May that is 128,000 words. It's very heavy in, in theory. Uh, it does get into applied stuff later on in, in the book, but it's, it's predominantly theory. Um, but then I also, my wife and I co-wrote a book that's coming out in next August mm-hmm. called What Do We Say When? Um, and it's called, it's, it's helping parents navigate cultural chaos for children and teens. And so what I'm trying to do is to take these high-level ideas and figure out how to bridge the gap between the academy and the person in the pew and to resource them with the necessary ideas to build up their own families, um, but in hopes of building up a healthy culture. Uh, And that's really what I see myself responsible for. Um, and, and I mean, the book that's coming out in May, just maybe to tie the bow on this, I think the, the reason this book could potentially be important is as I understand the landscape, I think it'll be at least the only contemporary kind of Protestant evangelical, um, natural law primer. And it's actually more than a primer. Um, but it's, it's, it's not what you would call like a Cambridge, up up like tome either but really what i'm trying to do in that book is to um, reframe how we think about the natural law as protestants um, to explain the natural law what it is as a theory and then to apply the natural law to the areas of life relations and order and uh, i mean to tie the boat perfectly uh, anyone who reads that book will see the name of robert george quoted several times throughout Well, we really appreciate your tribute to him, uh, especially as the the founder of the Madison program. So thank you so much for writing the book and for taking the time to come on with us today to chat about it. Yeah, thank you, Annika. Blessings to you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. 
Dr. Andrew T. Walker on his book, Social Conservatism for the Common Good, A Protestant Engagement with Robert P. George. The link to the book is in the show notes, and be you Protestant, Catholic, or otherwise, I would absolutely encourage you to check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also keep up with the Madison program by going to our website, jmp.princeton.edu, which has all of our upcoming events and all the recordings from our previous events if you want to see some of the really cool events that we've had here on Princeton's campus. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm super excited to be starting season three with you guys, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time here on Madison's Notes.